their training says letting nature have its way is dangerous. The training is what's the five worst things this can become and how do we intervene early and often to prevent that from happening? And they, they're not really trained to think of the interventions as having a downside. I'm Cynthia Overgaard, owner of Hypnobirthing of Connecticut, childbirth advocate, and postpartum support specialist. And I'm Trisha Ludwig, certified nurse midwife and international board-certified lactation consultant. And this is the Down to Birth Podcast. Childbirth is something we're made to do, but how do we have our safest and most satisfying experience in today's medical culture? Let's dispel the myths and get down to birth. Elliot, we're really excited to have you on the podcast today. Why don't we start the episode with you telling us a little bit about your background and how you got into the work that you do? Okay, that's great. Thank you for having me. Um, yeah, I was uh, seven years old. What happened is I walked into a building in, in Manhattan. I grew up in New York, and uh, there were a whole bunch of people uh, doing a CPR class. And uh, I was completely mesmerized by the whole thing. I said to my parents, what are they doing to that poor girl who has no arms and no legs and they're just beating her up? And uh, then they explained to me what it was and I was just blown away by the fact that you can use your body to be somebody else's heart and lungs. And it really planted a seed in my head, like I wanna use my life to help other people, you know, in similar ways. So I pursued medicine uh, from that age, like I think two years later, maybe it was nine or 10, I, I started my first CPR class and then I did uh, first aid and responding to emergencies and lifeguarding. And eventually when I was in um, high school, my senior year of high school, I did EMT training in New York state. And then I became uh, an EMT. I started working in ambulances and emergency rooms. And uh, when I started college, I started doing pre-med and I wanted to go to medical school. Um, when I was uh, in college, my father died suddenly of a, um, partially of a medical mix-up. And um, it gave me even more respect for how powerful drugs and surgery are, but also made me want to be on the other side, uh, meaning holistic healthcare, working mm -hmm. with the body instead of against it, um, when possible. It's uh, Again, I have a, a tremendous amount of respect for drugs and surgery and, and the place that they have, but I also think they um, can do a lot of harm in addition to doing a lot of good. And they're generally not the greatest first line of approach, you know, the, the entry line of uh, treatment. So... I kind of took a year off and explored a bunch of um, alternatives. I fell in love with chiropractic and massage. Um, to me, they really go together. You have a musculoskeletal system, not just muscular or skeletal. And um, I went to school separately for both and tried to smush them together like the peanut butter and chocolate of holistic healthcare. And, um, you know, my wife, uh, we met young in summer camp and we got married a couple of years later. Uh, she studied psychology. She's an amazing listener and um, talker and just really great at helping people process what's on their mind. After uh, grad school, when we're at the end, we're like, hey, let's have a baby. So we followed the instructions and uh, no baby <laughs> came out, sadly. Um, so we ended up going down this kind of evil path of fertility treatments uh, medically, even though we were pretty young. And we exhausted everything they had in about three years' time. And also, ironically, everything we had. <laughs> we had nothing left. And they had nothing left to offer. And so they said, just you guys should explore alternative pathways to uh, to parenthood. And uh, we were just literally broke. No no money. No, Our relationship was was not good. Our individual selves were, were broken. 
And so we just said, you know what, we're young, let's take some time and just fix ourselves. And uh, we really did a lot of things. We started eating better. We were in Nebraska at this time for her internship. And so they have hundreds of miles of these beautiful bike trails. And so we would go bike riding for hours together and started to meditate a little bit in Chinese medicine. And, uh, you know, nine or 10 months later, uh, we were just finally ready to talk about should, you know, should we look at adoption or other egg donation? I don't think we really had embryo donation as a choice. Might have been an option if it had been available. And uh, either way, just as we started to talk about it, we found out we were pregnant. Mostly she was pregnant. And um, we... I uh, couldn't agree more. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's the truth. Definitely. And, uh, <laughs> I second that. Anyway, so, so uh, yeah, every two years after that, another baby popped out. Like, we couldn't turn it off. And uh, when we moved to Los Angeles, uh, we opened up a practice, mind-body, and together. And uh, it was general health and wellness with an eye on boosting natural fertility. And in the first year, we were able to squeak out a couple of babies for our clients. And every year after that, it just snowballed more and more pregnancies. And that's how we both ended up in uh, focusing on pregnancy. And you're also a doula. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So, I mean, I'll be the first one to admit it's a little weird to have a a male doula or for a guy to even be a doula. But it kind of, for all the people I know that are male doulas, it kind of evolved. So um, I do massage and and chiropractic care. I spend a lot of time with each of my patients on every visit. Um, It's not like typical chiropractic that's fairly quick in and out. Um, And we do a lot, whether they're coming in for symptomatic things or positioning things or just getting ready for birth or recovering. Um, we do a lot. We spend a lot of time together. And so I'm on the journey with my clients oftentimes. And um, in the earlier stages, I would just see that people would go in with a with a plan and do so many things during the pregnancy to stay and, and be healthy, whether it's working out or yoga or meditation or drinking things that look very, very green to me. Um, and then they go in with this mindset of, I want this natural, unmedicated, uh, uninterventive birth, and uh, oftentimes come out with a completely different story. So um, part of me, that's how I got involved in, in the idea of informed pregnancy, trying to help people research and understand the choices and, and how the choices will affect the outcome um, earlier on before, you know, so I just kept hearing people say, I didn't even know that was an option or things like that. Um, but what happened for the doula care is I just, uh, I do a lot of work with positioning. So at the end of um, pregnancy, when our assumption is babies want to get into the same position we'd like them to get into. And um, if they don't, there's something blocking it. It could be structural, which I can't control, but it could be functional. If the low back, hips, and pelvis, very stiff, tight, and rigid, it could make uh, an environment where the baby doesn't have free movement, where the body's resisting those movements instead of at least accommodating, if not facilitating those movements. And so... Uh, a midwife called me one time uh, from a birth on a Sunday. I remember because we were at Petco with the whole family trying not to buy the skinny pig. And the midwife was like, hey, you know how you can sometimes open things up and breach baby's turn head down? Can you do something similar for posterior babies, like to see if they can help rotate the skull off the spine? And I said, I would just do the same thing. You know, and she's like, great, I got a patient for you. I'm like, awesome, I have a spot on Tuesday. And she's like, no, right now, you got to come to Santa Monica. We are in the middle of this birth. It's been going on for 24 hours. She's stuck at nine centimeters for eight hours. Baby's not in a great position. You got to come in here. And I, I was like, oh, great. We're definitely not buying the skinny pig. So thank you. <laughs> and uh, 
I drove over there. It's the first time I went into a birth that was a kid that wasn't like my own birth. So it was a little like already kind of strange for me. I'd never met this couple before. So that was even stranger. Um, I kind of went in there and she was high as a kite on her own drugs. You know, she was just literally high. And I was sort of trying to do informed consent. Hi, I'm LA Berlin. I'm a chiropractor, massage therapist. My goal is to like massage you and loosen things up. And these are some of the pros and cons, risks and benefits. You know, do you want to do it? And she was like, I love you, Mr. Berlin. And I was like, I think that's a yes, <laughs> you know, and and to make it even weirder, they were filming this birth for a documentary, which they also didn't tell me before I got there. So there were like six cameras set up everywhere. And uh, all I could think about for the first 20 minutes is like, how does my balding spot look in camera too? <laughs> Fair um, enough. So when you said she was high, she was high. I can't describe it any other way. She was just in, in part with the surges coming. Um, you could see that there was discomfort. There was some intensity, but that the intensity was at least split in half between pain and pleasure. Mm. And it was like, ow and oh, at the same time. Mm. Yep. And that would happen with the massage too, as I would dig into like her hips and her piriformis and all the things that were, she was very, very fit, but it's not just that she had strong muscles, they were also really tight and that creates such a rigidity. Yeah. And perhaps why would the baby couldn't turn? After about two hours of digging in and melting things away, um, the baby did clunk into place. She felt the baby move right into place. And she said some kind of expletive and then she said, I think you just saved the birth. And then 40 minutes later, the baby was out. And that's how I started going to birth. After that story came out, other people would be like, hey, uh, we have this woman. She's having really bad back labor. She doesn't want to have medication. Can you come over and maybe help her back? I just ended up at all these births doing massage and chiropractic, not really do the work. But once in a while, I'd get to a birth where it had been going on for a long time, sometimes days. And as soon as I got there, everybody else would just like disappear, all the other support people, and go take a nap. And I'm alone with this laboring person who I'd never met before, sometimes one in particular in my mind, where it was kind of similar. I went in there and they literally ditched me the minute I got there. So the midwife and assistant, they didn't even come in with me. They're like, she's over there. They'd been up for two days. They just went to sleep. I walked in and there's a guy and he's like, are you Berlin? I'm like, yeah. He's like, oh, thank God. I'm going to go get some smokes. And he left. <laughs> Uh, and then it's just me and this labor. And again, I try to do informed consent. She's sort of in a child's pose. I can't even see her eyes. And I'm giving her the informed consent, but it's sort of like you're on the phone and you're not sure if the other person got cut off or not because it's so quiet. And But she's right there and I'm telling her everything. And then just silence. And I'm like, I can't do anything in my mind. I can't do anything until I get some kind of yes. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I waited and I said, you know, is everything okay? And then she finally picked her head, looked straight into my eyes. She had like the greenest eyes. You can't forget them. And she said, blah, 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 and just threw up all over the place. And I was like, oh, nice to meet you. I'd never even been. It was at a birth center. I'd never been to the birth center before. I'm like looking in all the cabinets, like where are the other sheets and linens and how, like, uh, anyway, things started to pick up eventually once we got our groove going. And then as labor would really kick into a more active, productive pattern, perhaps transition, she's looking, I'm she's holding onto the tub and I'm massaging her back and hips. And she's like, hey, can you say something, you know, useful to me and helpful to, it's getting kind of intense. I'm like, I don't know. I just rub stuff and crack things. So uh, eventually I was like, you know what, if I'm going to be at these births, I should do some doula training just so that 
like I could be a little more helpful in these awkward situations. So, and you, it was so amazing. you know where to find the sheets when you need them. Exactly. <laughs> like things, secrets like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and other secrets, like, am I supposed to, if I'm in the hospital birth, do I like, I gotta, do I use their bathroom or do I go find some, like uh, all the scruples of birth right. uh, that I had no idea. Anyway, um, you know, I did the doula training with uh, Anna Paula Markell here in Los Angeles. She's amazing. She trains a lot of doulas. And my wife was like, you know what? I should come do it with you. And we did it together. And uh, it was fantastic. All, uh, my favorite part was all the role playing where at some point I was the laboring woman. My wife was uh, my doula and she did a great job, I got to say. Um, and then, yeah, our third partner was the annoying mother-in-law. So that was a, a great scenario. <laughs> the perfect trio. I had a client in labor this week for about two days, and I was in contact with her husband a lot. And at one point I reached out to my mentor who is Nancy Weiner in Boston. She's the midwife who coined the acronym VBAC in her book, Silent Knife in the 80s. And Nancy said when a labor lasts that long, uh, it's an indication of fetal positioning. We just had Gail Tully on the podcast last month. Mm -hmm. And I wish, yeah, and I wish I had asked her that question because I know there's, I'm always saying that childbirth is, we're trying to turn this art into a science by having expectations of how it should progress. But that was the first time in all my years that anyone said, if a labor lasts long, it is necessarily a fetal positioning matter. Because I know some labors, you know, just that art of childbirth can cause it to last a long time. Being someone who's in the room who can affect the outcome and the trajectory of birth, What's your opinion on that? I don't know if we can ever get to facts, but do you have the same theory that a long labor is necessarily a fetal positioning matter? I think uh, I could never say with that much confidence uh, that that's always what's happening, but I think that there's a functional issue when labor goes on that long. Um, you know, I, I, I'll give you different examples that just pop into my head. I sometimes see people get a membrane sweep um, and it causes contractions to start happening, but the body's not ready yet. And so you could see like three days of prodromal labor that's maybe feels like labor. It's intense, but it's not really doing anything. I don't know that the baby's in the wrong position. It just hasn't, you know, it, the way I view it after all the births I've been to is, it's kind of like going to open the safety deposit box at the bank. I have my key, the branch manager has their key. We both have to turn them before that thing will open up. And so I see it as the baby has to sort of signal, I'm ready. The body, the mother's body has to say, I'm ready. And when they're both ready, things can happen. And if we try like scratching that safe deposit box open before we have those keys in there, it's just not gonna open. So I think there's a functional thing that takes place there. It's just one example of many where labor can go on for a long time Maybe in that case, the baby is in a good position, just not ready yet. Oftentimes, I do see like a baby just not, you can see they're not lined up well. Their head is tilted, so asynclitic, or um, or the baby's just rotated in, in a position where it's going to be really hard to push down any further. Um, and and the, the body work or other things that they do, positional changes, um, other things that they do that get the baby to shift into a better position, uh, sometimes very clearly, as soon as they shift, boom, things start to pick up and, and progress. But I think there's other things. Like sometimes I just see like a uh, baby's in a good position, but you have a mom that's just for some reason 
too resistant. Her body's too resistant to let the baby down. Sometimes I think because of emotional things like extreme fear and she's grabbing on for dear life. Um, sometimes physical things. Uh, again, I think that athletic pelvic syndrome, which is uh, uh, if you Google it, you're not going to find it. It's just a, a term that I'm coining or billing. I don't know. And um, it's just this combination of really strong, really tight muscles in the low back, glutes, piriformis, hip flexors, adductors, even the round leg ones sometimes, and the abdominal muscles. Like, you know, you normally can't feel them after like 32 weeks, but some people, they're super strong, gripping on for dear life. Um, that's a lot for um, a baby to push through, you know, and, and so the uterus has to work a lot harder and sometimes a lot longer to get through there. By the way, with that said, sometimes you see these uh, iron women um, just pop a baby out really quickly in two or three hours so there's obviously it's not all or none but those are just patterns that i see and so i think positioning is probably the most common but there's other things that can also make labor go on for a while i think i just want to comment on that as well that it depends where in labor the stall happens so mm. if it's an early labor i think it is um i mean it can also be about position in early labor but Later in labor, um, especially if you're talking about like second stage, installing in second stage, it's almost always about position, but also it's exhaustion. So if somebody's having a prodromal labor that starts and goes on for days and days and days, once they're in active labor, it's very easy for the uterus to get tired and the contractions to not be as strong anymore. Even if the baby is in a great position, their labor may stall. And then that can result yeah. in a swollen cervix, which can become an impediment later. So I, I'll feel better, especially in case that couple is listening. I'll feel better just reporting what did happen in this case. That um, I reached out to Colleen Myatt, who's a doula that I work with, who is certified in spitting babies. And she sent over some exercises for the couples to start working on. And um, they did. But meanwhile, their midwives were saying, take Benadryl and rest because of probably what Trisha is saying, but they didn't want to take Benadryl. They didn't feel comfortable with that approach. So we went the route of giving them exercises to do, and they did end up with a completely natural vaginal birth about 10 hours after that. So it just did turn out to be a long labor, and we won't know for sure if those exercises were the game changer, but it, it's interesting to, to theorize. It almost always seems to be one of those two things or a combination of the two. So if you can fix, if you can optimize the position through chiropractic, massage, um, spinning babies techniques, and if the woman is exhausted, you get her rest and hydrate and fed, then your chances are far more successful. Yeah. Hydration so, was a big part of it too. Yeah. But, but mm -hmm. positioning is, it, it is almost everything. It really is. You know, it always just comes back to trust. I mean, if when, when people ask me if there is one thing you know, that they can do to have a successful birth, it is to come to that place in your body where you trust the process. And that's exactly what you were describing is being able, being able to move past that fear to allow your body to do the natural work that it can do and to have full trust in its ability to relax and settle into that. Then it just works. Down to Birth is sponsored by Postpartum Soothe. Recovering from a vaginal birth takes many women by surprise. Everyday activities like sitting, walking, and going to the bathroom can be uncomfortable. And Postpartum Soothe is just the remedy to support your healing and relieve discomfort. Postpartum Soothe is a 100% organic herbal blend that's applied to maternity pads in the days immediately following your birth, giving you all the benefits of a sits bath 24 seven. 
That's because herbs like comfrey leaf, uva ursi, and witch hazel are known for their antimicrobial and anti-inflammatory properties. Postpartum Soothe can be prepared anytime during the third trimester, and it makes a beautiful baby gift. It's a must for any woman seeking a faster, easier recovery from a vaginal birth. Visit postpartumsoothe.com. That's postpartumsoothe, S-O-O-T-H-E dot com, and use promo code DOWNTOBIRTH. So your inspiration and love for humanity expanded, obviously, as you started to get into those birthing rooms. Was there another element of anything that discouraged you? Was there a deeper level of anything that led you to a greater longing for change in some way? And if so, what is that longing? What is that change? That gets back to to what I was saying sort of towards the beginning, seeing people plan and really work hard for a healthy pregnancy, a healthy birth that where the plan was uninterventive no interventions in the birth. Um, I think most of my patients are pretty open-minded. So even when they go for plan A, being no interventions there, if I need to do this or that, of course I will do this or that. But just being let down with their own stories, their own journeys coming out. Um, and and this is also towards the beginning before I started even really going to birth, coming out with a completely different experience and then not understanding how they got like hit by this truck, everything was going fine and boom. All of a sudden, things cascaded really quickly. Um, I think the business of being born kind of really helped get a little bit of insight into that. But people would come back and ask about VBAC all the time. Can you help me find a doctor who's supportive of VBAC? And I was like, why aren't all doctors supportive of VBAC? I just didn't get it. It's not my background. My background is emergency medicine. Um, And so I did some research. I'm like, you know, there is this risk of that happening. It seems pretty small compared to other risks, I'm not sure why they wouldn't do a VMAC. And you start to do the the homework and you realize like the politics and the legalities behind why sometimes a choice is taken away from a patient, an individual, even though it's as just safe as other choices that they, they have. Risks that we take in obstetrics all the time that are sometimes greater than that risk. But that particular choice is taken away because um, maybe there's more liability, which is risk to your doctor or, or their institution, which is not necessarily increased risk to you. And it just became abundantly clear that if you don't do your own research and your own homework, you're not going to have the full complement of choices available to you. And so that's why I started doing informed pregnancy. I started, we wrote a magazine for of seven years um, on, on different topics within pregnancy, childbirth, and postpartum. And eventually that turned into our podcast, the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. But it's uh, ne- that also never gets old, just seeing how, how the system disempowers otherwise strong, healthy women and makes them believe, tries to make them believe, you can't do this on your own, we have to do this for you. And I really have no agenda on what choice a person makes. There are a million ways to give birth in this country. You do it in a strawberry field all by yourself. You can do it at home with a midwife, without a midwife. You can do it at a birthing center, a hospital with a doctor and midwife, medicated, unmedicated, vaginal, surgical. It doesn't matter to me. All that matters to me is that you know what the options are. You're able to get some relatively unbiased information on what the pros and cons are of each choice. And that when you make those choices, you surround yourself with people who support you 100% and will do as much as they can to help you achieve your goals. And, and of course, be open-minded as things change sometimes. And, and those interventions become 
incredible. They become life-saving. They become miraculous um, when when needed, but when overused um, or pushed on people who don't need them, they become almost tragic. I've always found the litigation argument a very convenient excuse. For example, I ended up firing my own obstetrician midway through my first pregnancy. And it was in part because she admittedly had about a 50% cesarean rate. And she listed literally a dozen reasons as to why she gave them. She doesn't like if the mother's too old, too young, too thin, too heavy, blah, blah, blah. And she went on and on. And in the end, she said, Cynthia, I'll be honest with you. Um, Litigation plays a big role. And, you know, at that point, being so uninformed in the field, I sat there and my thoughts were, right, she doesn't want to take any chances. She wants a safe outcome. And of course she does. But when you really do the research, it's the unnecessary interventions that actually cause the adverse outcomes we're seeing so much in the U.S. And that's the trap, I think, because we usually end the discussion with, well, providers don't want to take any chances, but they are dramatically resulting in so many more adverse outcomes because we're so free with induction when it isn't necessary cesarean a little too quickly before trying some of the measures that you're talking about. We talk all the time about the impact of society because even when we had Dr. Neil Shaw on the podcast, he was saying that some hospitals in the U.S. have a 7% cesarean rate and some have a 70% cesarean rate. And even that little microcosm of a culture in that hospital does have an effect on birth outcomes. So I always feel like the two key issues that we're battling in this country with our high maternal mortality rate, where we have so many other things going for us, are A, the system. I think we are putting doctors in a very difficult position to do their work because they have so many conflicts that they have to address and manage. And I think the second is informed choice. I think so many grown adults walk around knowing so many of their rights in this country, but they don't really know their right to informed consent. And that's something that I wish were just absolutely commonplace. A study was done, I think it was 2007, but it showed 73% of women who received an episiotomy did not provide their consent. So it's like culturally, this is normal. My feeling is it's always been that the problem with malpractice is not the practice. It's not so much, um, it comes from the legal side, it comes from the litigation, it comes from the law, it comes from the fact that a doctor is protected if they do a cesarean. They're always protected if they do a cesarean, even if there's a bad outcome, but they did the cesarean, so they're protected. And all the other risks that come with the cesarean and all the other interventions along the way are overlooked so long as they went to cesarean. So long as it wasn't negligence. Yes. Well, I, I mean, Trisha, I think that's an um, excellent point, meaning we reward doctors for doing things, not for sitting around with their hands in their pocket. So somebody gets induced, even though they don't really medically necessarily need to be induced. If something goes wrong with that induction, they could make the argument, hey, she was past her due date. She was late. And if we had let nature have its way with her, it would have been much worse. And, and that they're likely to get off. They're very defensible. But if they don't induce and something goes wrong and they're past the due date, that prosecutor comes in and says, hey, look, they were uh, late. You could have helped. We had tools and you didn't use them. So and that's very hard to defend. And so I, I think you're absolutely right, Tricia, that the system is set up that way. They're rewarded for intervening and punished for just letting nature do its thing. I have two 
I think, telling episodes on our podcast with obstetricians. One of them, very recent, it's an OB who chose to have a cesarean. Um, and she talks about why she chose to have a C-section, even though she's young, strong, healthy, very physically fit, brilliant girl. She wanted to have a C-section. In fact, uh, her water broke and labor started, and she's like, oh, maybe I should just have the vaginal birth. And she still went with the C-section because of uh, fear, really her own fear about what would happen if she allowed her body to birth naturally, what could possibly go wrong. Um, another one that's a little bit older is an OBGYN who uh, scheduled a C-section for herself as well. And then midway through the pregnancy, she kind of was wondering, She had this is how she put it, why am I cutting a hole in the sheetrock if there's like a functional door for this baby to come out through? And she meditated on it for a few nights and she's like it's fear it's just fear and for both of them i think more than fear of seeing things go wrong it's the fear that's placed in them in medical school it's the model that they've been taught on trained on ingrained into them and so she did a epic four-hour fear relief session with a hypnotherapy uh hypnobirthing hypnotherapy person around here and um she really worked for the rest of her pregnancy and letting go of that fear she has an incredible birth her, her uh experience um at the hospital and and if you listen to it spoiler alert she has her next two babies at home with a midwife this ob has her next two babies at home with a midwife she became the most popular obstetrician for people who wanted natural-minded birth because that fear that she had for herself she was also bringing to every patient and every birth and I think that what I'm trying to get at is these obstetricians would do exactly the same thing for themselves or their own daughters that they're doing for other people. I don't think it's like this intention to sometimes, sure, how it affects the schedule or how you get paid or how many people you can see. But I think on a much deeper level, they're doing what they think is going to give the best outcome for mother and baby. And I think it's the system, though. It is. It is. For sure. Their training says letting nature have its way is dangerous. Every time something goes even close to the edge of the box, she said the training is what's the five worst things this can become, even regardless of how remote it is to become that. And how do we intervene early and often to prevent that from happening? And they, they're not really trained to think of the interventions as having a downside. Exactly. Only as having an upside. Well, medical school, the the model of care in medical school is that birth is a potentially pathologic process, and more often than not, it is. And whereas midwifery school and doula training is the model is that birth is a physiologic process that more often than not goes right. And I do, I do see that when you go into a hospital to give birth, there's this sense immediately that you're handing over your your choice and decision making to to the hospital and um that is further perpetuated by the little outfit that you get to wear um this this gown that you know barely covers everything and if there's a little gust of wind you know you're you're exposed and um they get these nice lab coats and you know it's just immediately you start to feel like you know, you work for them, whatever they want you have to do. But the truth is in America, it's the exact opposite. We as providers all work for you as the patient. And that's not made clear enough at all. And it's informed consent or refusal. It's you, you have the option to say, yes, I want to do this or no, I don't want to do this. And you can fire your doctor too. I just had a patient, she wanted to give birth without, uh, 
without IV antibiotics, but she tested GBS positive. Her first birth was precipitous labor, and she assumed the second one would be pretty quick, too. And she's like, if I'm going to have a very quick birth, I don't want to have IV antibiotics. And her doctor's like, well, you know, we could take away, we can call Child Protective Services. And she's like, what? And then she just switched and had a home birth with a midwife literally last night, and it went, uh, it went swimmingly. So. Your example of going to that birth when the woman was bent over in child's pose and you needed her consent to even lay your hands on her said everything because you asked her a question, she didn't respond, and you demonstrated the consent cannot be implied. You waited till you had eye contact, till you had a response. She threw up all over you. It wasn't the response you needed for informed consent, but you were demonstrating that that is what every single provider actually is supposed to do. That would change things. That one thing would change everything. I definitely, you know, it's a learning curve for us as providers. So I definitely have, by being present in some of those situations, I've been able to learn, you know, the the right way. I, I think at first, sometimes I'm like, I was called to this birth. I'm supposed to do this. You know, if she's not talking to me, maybe I should just jump right in and do it. It's like, it, it takes, I don't know, it's a learning curve. I, we all get better over time. I also learned to wear a moisture wicking shirt now whenever I go to birth. So. so you have seen a lot of vaginal breech births and a lot of VBACs, is that correct? Um, I well for sure, uh, I, and also some vaginal breech birth after cesarean. So uh, combining the two, I, I wouldn't say I've seen a lot of vaginal breech births. I mean, probably more than most people, maybe five or six that I've been present at. But I've seen lots of people come through my office who choose to have vaginal breech birth, um, and I'm on the journey with them that way. And VBACs, I mean, tons, tons of people here in Los Angeles. We have great VBAC resources, um, and we have also great HBAC resources. I don't know who coined that term HBAC, but because uh, it implies that the house is giving birth it's a little weird but um sadly in california midwives are no longer allowed to deliver it's out of the scope of practice to deliver uh, or attend breech birth um and, and uh, most of the doctors don't do it but there still are a handful of mostly old timers who do it and um, the choice is pretty much alive here and um, they are selective in who they take but if uh, there's a good candidate they will offer the choice and things generally go really well. Can you tell us a little bit about um, some of the misconceptions and myths around breech birth? Yeah. So I made a documentary about breech birth. It's called Heads Up, The Disappearing Art of Vaginal Breech Delivery. And Dr. Paul Crane uh, is probably in his 80s now, I'm going to say, um, and never stopped. He said when he was a, a resident, they just never even cared if it was breech or not. That's whatever it was they delivered. Um, and so he said the real secret about breech birth is how simple they are. Really, they're just not not a big deal. Um, I think that as cesarean birth got safer and safer, we started to apply this question of who's going to be a better candidate for cesarean birth and vaginal birth. And in 2001, the study was published, the term breech trial, that essentially in a very simplified way took a thousand women who were breached and, and signed them up for vaginal delivery and a thousand they had cesarean delivery and they just kind of compared the outcomes of the babies uh, after birth, immediately after birth. And they found that it was a small but statistically significant better outcome for breech babies born by cesarean than born vaginally. And so based on that, the United States and Canada made the recommendation that all breech babies should be born by planned cesarean, typically at 39 weeks. Uh, two years later, the same research group from McGill University that did the original study also did a follow-up study on the two-year-olds and to compare the health of the two-year-olds that they could find from that study. And they found that uh, there was no, no long-term difference in health. 
So that's the first head-scratching moment. Maybe we shouldn't have taken away that option. But then uh, uh, Dr. Gleiserman, a researcher from Israel, kind of broke down the study and found a lot of uh, problems with the study. First of all, it's done in, I think, 28 or 29 countries, uh, some of which don't have a NICU. Some of the areas where they were have no NICU. They don't have necessarily ultrasound. There's not a great way to do selective breach delivery. Who's a better candidate and less good candidate? And there are definitely, there are risks in delivering a breach ba baby vaginally. Number one, um, if the whole baby comes out and the head gets stuck, head entrapment is a big deal. Number two is if the um, umbilical cord comes out first, you have an umbilical cord prolapse, and then the baby comes out and the cord gets squeezed between the mother and baby. That's a big deal. Um, and those are, are not risks that don't exist. They do exist. They're part of the risk-benefit analysis. But also, when you do selective breach delivery, you start to see that some of those risks are higher or lower for different people in different situations. I had a patient who had two babies vaginally, both seven pounds, um, both head down, and her third baby happened to be breached, and they didn't catch it until 39 weeks, and then they just immediately sent her up for a C-section. I was like, wait a second. She's in a frank breach position, so the butt is down, which typically blocks the cord from coming through, mitigating that risk of Collapse. Uh, it's also, you know, it, if there's a foot dangling down there, the foot can kind of come through before the cervix is fully open, setting you up for a better chance of head entrapment. But also, she had two babies come through her body. This baby was measuring the same seven pounds, um, and they didn't get stuck. So her odds of having either of those two complications were extremely low. She actually ended up having complications from her surgery. So it makes you wonder if the risk for her in her particular circumstance would have been lower doing the vaginal birth than doing the cesarean birth. And in fact, in 2006, the United States changed their recommendation that perhaps vaginal breach delivery is a decent option for you if you can find a provider who's skilled and comfortable with it. But since 2001, we've really not been training providers to do vaginal breach delivery. And so that option is becoming less and less available. So that's what, in a nutshell, what I know about vaginal breach delivery. Um, it does have risks like every other choice. Um, no choice is 100% safe. And I think that for a lot of women that are, are literally not even told that it's an option, um, they go back and wonder, you know, maybe I, that would have been a better choice for me. Elliot, you've given us so much good information today. There's there's so much to digest from, from what you've been talking about. Can you share with our listeners some additional resources that you may have for them to go to to learn more? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I mean, first of all, I just, I'm really grateful for you guys having me on here today and for the work that you're doing in general. I think that um, these conversations if nothing else, will help people just learn that there are choices and options and start to explore and learn and become more active in the decision-making team and hopefully surround themselves with people who support their choices and have, have good experiences. That doesn't always mean it's the experience you planned on, but it's one that was supported and one that was informed and one that was empowered. Um, and that's our whole mission at Informed Pregnancy. So um, we have the podcast. Every week we, we have a new episode of the podcast, Informed Pregnancy. Uh, my favorite are the ones where we do the before and after interview somebody leading up to their birth and then again after they have the baby to kind of talk about how the experience went. And then we also do a whole bunch of uh, celebrity pregnancy or birth interviews. Um, and we also have the two documentaries. So I mentioned Heads Up and the other one is about vaginal birth after cesarean. It's told entirely in the voices of four women who are pregnant for the second or third time who previously only had cesarean birth and now they're on a mission for a different experience. Um, that one streams for free, actually, at um, informedpregnancy.com 
or the movie is called Trial of Labor. You can also get it by going to trialoflabor.com. But all of our media is uh, accessible through Instagram at Dr. Berlin, D-O-C-T-O-R-B-E-R-L-I-N. If you enjoyed our podcast, please take a moment to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and share a favorite episode or two. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Down to Birth Show or contact us and review show notes at downtobirthshow.com. Please remember this information is made available to you for educational and informational purposes only. It is in no way a substitute for medical advice. For our full disclaimer, visit downtobirthshow.com slash disclaimer. Thanks for tuning in, and as always, hear everyone and listen to yourself. You know, hopefully, I think as people become more informed and empowered, they and and what what Spinning Babies is doing is kind of amazing too. Um, you know, we're we're getting more people, more more of this type of support available to everybody. <laughs>